present here. Anyways, we're going to hop into the message now. Um, well, good morning, church, and welcome to week eight of our 12-week fall series that we've been calling Unleashed. So for those of you who maybe you come once in a while and don't really know what's going on, this series uh, was born out of this word that God gave us about how he is calling his church to freedom. And so through this series, we have been addressing some of the lies that people believe that hold them back from everything God has for them. Some of the problems that people face in living out in freedom. And we've talked about unforgiveness. We've talked about lies. We've talked about dealing with pain from the foundation of knowing who we are and who God is. That we are loved. We are not alone. We will always have enough to do what God has called us to do. And we are eternal. And our goal through this series, our prayer and our hope is that people might find freedom. This is all about freedom. We believe that God has called us to live in freedom. Galatians 5 tells us, for freedom Christ has set you free. And so the goal of this series is that we might begin to address the problems, the pain, the unforgiveness, the hurt, the wounds that are in our lives so that we might live in freedom, unleashed from the things that have been holding us back for far too long. And I truly believe, I've heard stories from some people, and I know that God is moving in this place. I know that there are people here who God, he's been working on your heart. That there are people here who have been set free from some things already. But I believe that God has life that is better for you than you could even imagine. And so this morning, we want to just continue in that flow of finding freedom. You know, a couple, or um, not a couple, uh, I've told the church many, many times that in my life, I, I used to struggle with an addiction to pornography and lust. And that was just part of my story that's fortunately, uh, through Christ, I've been set free from that addiction, but, but that was just part of who I was. And, and I, in the process of finding freedom from that addiction, I learned a lot about how our brains work and how addictions work. And I'm the type of person who I'm going to try everything and I want to understand why something works the way it works. And if it doesn't make sense, then I want to, I want to find the, like, explain like I'm five answer, like, let's dumb it down. I, want, I just want to understand. And, and so in my fight for freedom, I tried all the behavior modification stuff. It never worked. Um, and, and I started to research into the psychology behind addiction. And as I was doing research, I learned about this fascinating thing that is called neural pathways. If we can throw up the, the next picture. This is uh, an image of a neural pathway. It's actually from research on mice, but it illustrates kind of how our brains work. And a neural pathway is essentially the habits that we form that determine how we act and how we think. And basically how neural pathways work, I apologize if you're a psychologist and I'm butchering this. This is just my understanding of it. Um, but how neural pathways basically work is that the more you do something, like when you do something the first time, it forms this neural pathway. 
And the more you do things a specific way, the stronger the pathway will become. It's why if you practice piano for 10 years, at the end of 10 years, you should be better than when you started, if you're doing it right. But, but at the end of 10 years, you ideally should be able to be, look back at the first songs and the first things you tried to do, and those should be easy for you because neural pathways have been formed, they've been strengthened, they've become automatic, you have muscle memory to be able to do these things. And so the more we do a behavior, the stronger the neural pathway becomes and the more automatic it becomes, which means that it also becomes more difficult to change. So the problem is when we form negative habits, negative patterns, negative neural pathways that begin to direct our behavior and our thoughts in a direction that we don't want them to go, but it's become automatic. Let me illustrate it this way, uh, throw up the next picture. I, um, this is how I learned how neural pathways work. This, is from a, this principle is from a psychologist. But basically, a neural pathway is similar to a road. So let's just imagine we, you, you live in a house and it's in the middle of nowhere. You have like two or three neighbors and the city or government or whoever is like, well, you need access to like our infrastructure, so we're going to put a road in to give you access to, to other roads and put this road in for you and your couple, couple neighbors. But when a, a road is put in, they usually determine how many cars are going to drive on it. And usually they'll start with the cheapest possible road. So they're like, oh, there's three people living in the middle of nowhere. They don't need a good road. We're going to put in a dirt road, which is little more, little more than we're going to drive down it four times, and hopefully it'll run out and it'll be good. But they keep it simple. And then as traffic increases, well, a dirt road isn't very safe, especially in Alberta. So we upgrade to a gravel road, because you're getting more cars traveling down the road, and okay, we need it to be higher quality so that it can go, they can go faster, and it is safer and can manage more traffic. And then let's say that your little middle-of-nowhere house, it, that area develops into a bit of a neighborhood, and so the city's like, okay, well, gravel road isn't going to support the amount of traffic that's coming through here, so we're going to upgrade to a paved road. And over time, as the neighborhood grows and develops, the paved road will go from two lanes to four lanes. And eventually what happens as the road gets used more and more and more is you get this absolute mess that is called the 401 in Toronto. <laughs> that is 19 lanes, not including on-ramps and off-ramps, one highway leading into downtown Toronto. It's insane. It is terrible to drive on. <laughs> some people from Ontario, I'm just hearing, oh, yeah, uh, come on. <laughs> but this is, in essence, how neural pathways work. They start small, 
But the more you use them, the more you do that behavior or you act in that way or you think in that way, the stronger and the more developed they become until eventually you have neural pathways that are just highways and those behaviors become automatic. It's like if you, when you drive to work. There's days where I will drive to work. It's a seven-minute drive. There are three red lights on that drive. I have zero idea how many lights I hit green. Zero. No idea. Absolutely no idea. I barely remember my drive because I've done it a million times. And it's become automatic. And so when we're dealing with bad patterns and bad habits in our lives, we, in essence, are having to say, yes, the highway is easier. Yes, it's faster to do things this way. Yes, this is what my body might crave or I might want to do it this way. Yes, this might be automatic, but I'm going to go back to the dirt road. And we're going to build new habits so that over time that highway system will break down in our minds. So we believe that God has created us to live in freedom. And that's the whole point of this series, is God has created us to live in freedom. But I, I really believe that as good as it is for us to talk about forgiveness, as good as it is for us to talk about lies, and as good as it is for us to talk about pain, often the problems that we see in our lives are merely symptoms of a deeper issue. They're merely symptoms of a pattern of behavior that we have created or of thinking that we have created that has become automatic in our lives. It's a pattern of behavior or thought that makes you, when you're bored, automatically reach your phone for your phone, unlock it in two seconds, and ooh, look at that, I'm on Instagram already. It's just, uh, I'm bored, so I'm going on social media. I don't even want to go on social media, but it's just, automatic. Or it's a pattern of negative thinking that when you make a mistake, you immediately, the first thought in your brain isn't, oh shoot, I made a mistake, that's too bad. It's, oh, I'm such a bad person because I didn't do it perfectly. It's a pattern of thinking. It's a pattern, these negative patterns that we've learned from our parents who learned it from their parents, who learned it from their parents that are now passing through the generations that we now get to suffer with and deal with, and if we don't deal with them, our children will deal with them. It's this negative, these negative patterns of behavior and thought that control our behavior and our thinking, that make us think a certain way, make us act a certain way, make us do things that we don't even want to do. So this morning, I want to talk about patterns. I want to talk about dealing with patterns. And I'm going to be honest, this message isn't going to be one that's like really faith-building and really exciting and whatnot. It, I, this is going to be intensely practical. Because I want to share with you from the Bible, from psychology, and from my own life experience, how to live unleashed from these patterns. And we're calling this message, Patterns Unleashed. You know, in Romans 6, we don't need to go to it right away, because I'm going to talk about it first. But in Romans 6, we find one, a, a passage from Paul that, that is fascinating on our choices 
in life. And in the precursor leading up to Romans 6 and Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul has really been doing this excellent job of explaining how we are now living under grace. How we once lived under the old covenant and uh, how in, in the past, in the former days, how God had gone to the people of Israel and been like, I want a relationship with you. And they're like, uh, why don't you just give us a list of rules, God, and we'll, we'll try, try and follow those and that'll determine our relationship. And he's like, okay, here you go. And, and how that had formed this old covenant, this old testament that we see in Scripture And Paul is saying, we once lived that way, but now through the death of Jesus, we are living under grace. Which means that when we believe in Jesus, we are forgiven not because we fulfill some fancy ritual, but we are forgiven because God loved us. That through the death of Jesus, he took all of our sins upon himself. He took the penalty we deserved for our actions. And when we believe in him, by the free gift of grace, through the death of Jesus, we are forgiven no matter what. And from that argument, Paul comes to Romans 6, and, and it's like he realizes, maybe he's rereading the letter or, or wh- whoever's scribing for him, he has them re- read it back to him, and he starts to realize, oh, I'm making too good of an argument here. And he starts to realize, well, if the believers in Rome read this, they're going to start to think, oh, we're forgiven. That's great. We can do whatever we want then because it's okay, we're forgiven. I can go rob that bank. I'm forgiven. It's okay, guys. I don't like my neighbor, so I can just kill him because I'm forgiven. And and Paul, from there, he's like, okay, grace is powerful. You are forgiven, that is true, but don't abuse God's grace. And from there, he comes to this passage in Romans 6, 15. And he says this, he says, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification." And his point is, yes, grace is sufficient. Yes, grace is powerful. Yes, you are forgiven. And when you believe in Jesus, nothing you can ever do can separate you from God's love. Your eternity is secure when you believe in Jesus. And sin won't separate you from God in eternity. But he's saying, in this life, we all have a choice. Am I going to live as a slave to sin or as a slave to sin? to God? Am I going to live as a slave to things that are seeking to destroy me, to destroy my relationships, and seeking to prevent me from walking in everything God has for me? Or am I going to submit myself to God, change my behavior, change my way of thinking, and live in the freedom God has for me? Because we all have this choice. We all get to choose. Do I live in slavery, leashed to things that really, that they might give pleasure for a moment, but really are destroying me? Or am I going to live unleashed 
in the freedom that God has for me. See, this morning we're talking about patterns, and, and in this passage, Paul really, he's using this allegory of, of slavery to discuss how we get to choose. We get to choose, are we leashed to sin or are we unleashed with God? We have the choice. And so, when dealing with patterns that are controlling our thinking and are controlling our behaviors and are tearing us apart, when being leashed to these things, what do we need to do? Well, first step is we need to recognize the problem. Need to recognize the problem. See, you never, you will never find freedom from something you won't admit. If you think your life is perfect, you are never going to find freedom from the things that are tearing you down. The first thing you need to do if you want freedom is recognize the problem. Recognize, I don't want to live the way I'm living. I don't want to be a slave to these things anymore. I don't want to let stress control my temper and my anger and allow, allow that anger to boil up and take it out of my wife. I no longer want to allow my boredom to control what I look at on my phone and allow inappropriate images into my head. I no longer want to live that way. I want to live in freedom. We have to recognize the problem, and this can be difficult. Because many of the patterns that we need to deal with if we want freedom in our lives are patterns of behavior and thinking that we've been taught by our families. You know, in Exodus 20, there's this passage that some people find a little bit confusing, but God is speaking and he's talking about how the sins of the parents will visit the children to the third and fourth generation. And, and in theological terms, this is known as a generational curse. And often that, that sounds really ominous, of course, and, um, and often people get confused by it. But I think really simply, what it's speaking of is a spiritual and psychological reality that when you pattern a behavior, when there's a pattern of behavior or thinking in your life, that automatically becomes the foundation of your children's lives. And unless it's dealt with, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow, and it's going to be a problem generations down the line. And we see this in the Bible. We look at the story of David, where he, one day he's on a rooftop, and he looks out, and he sees a woman who's bathing. And, you know, the reality is you can't always control what you see because there are random things that happen, and, and you're not always in control of what you see, but you can control how long you look. So there's nothing wrong with David being on the rooftop and looking out and, oh, look, there's a naked woman over there. The problem was when he fixated on her, and then, when he sent his servant to bring her to him, even though she was married, and slept with her. And so David commits the sin. He commits this, this egregious sin. And then we look at the next generation, David's children, one of whom goes, lusts after his sister, and rapes her. It's just, this is the Bible. This is real life. It's tragic, but it's 
what happens. And then another one of David's sons, in anger, kills the first brother, and then kicks David off the throne and goes and takes David's concubines, his, the, these women that David was sleeping with, and sleeps with them in public. We see sin starts with David, and by the time it comes to his children, it has gotten worse and worse and worse. Or we look at the story of Abraham, who in Genesis 20, he goes to Egypt, and he's like, they're both, him and his wife are in their 70s, and, but, but he's like, oh, my wife is really hot. So he's like, they're going to want to sleep with her, so I'm going to tell them she's my sister so they don't murder me. And then one generation further, his son Isaac does the same thing with Isaac's wife. And then one generation further, Isaac has a son named Jacob, which literally means the deceiver, who then deceives his brother and cheats him out of his inheritance. It started with Abraham, but it grew and spread through the generations. So if we want freedom, we need to begin to recognize the problem. You know, in, um, in my family growing up, my parents always told me and my brother, don't drink alcohol, ever. That was just the rule in the house. And for a long time, I thought that the rule was there because of Christian purity rules, which are just random abstract rules that somebody decided, oh, I feel uncomfortable when somebody else does this, so I'm going to inhibit their freedom in ways that the Bible doesn't inhibit their freedom, and you, oh, you shouldn't wear that outfit because it might cause someone else to stumble, or oh, you shouldn't drink alcohol because, you know, Jesus said don't drink alcohol, even though, you know, Jesus turned water into wine, and not just wine, but good wine. Um, so it wasn't grape juice, as some people try to claim. It was good, good wine. Um, or, or you hear like, oh, don't go to the movies because then you're not going to go to heaven. Just Christ weird Christian purity rules. Um, but over time, I, I learned from my mom that the reason behind it wasn't to be legalistic. The reason behind it was because on both sides of my family, on my mom's side and on my dad's side, there was rampant alcoholism. And so my parents decided, they drew a line in the sand and they said, no more. We will not let alcoholism define our family and our, any longer. We will not let our children suffer with the same problems our parents suffered with. And so they never drank a drop. They've never drank a drop because they're like, this might be right to drink in moderation, but I will not let a generational sin be passed down to my children. We need to recognize the problem. Whether it's in our lives or it's generational, we need to recognize the problem. And that might require prayer. It might require counseling. It might require going to your mom or your dad or, or one of your grandparents or whoever is the keeper of your family secrets and finding out the root Finding out, is this something we've always struggled with in silence? Is this generational in nature? And it requires asking yourself tough questions. What is in my life that is bad? What is in my life that I don't want to do any longer? What is in my life that God is calling me not to do anymore? Asking yourself, what do I reach for when I'm bored? 
What do I do when I'm stressed or upset? What behaviors and thought patterns are in my life that are secretly controlling me? I have to recognize the problem. The second thing we need to do is we need to bring it into the light. I told you this is going to be an incredibly practical message because I don't want to share anything that is different from what I had to do to find freedom. This is exactly what I had to do in order to find freedom from lust and pornography, was I had to bring it into the light for God and others. And often this requires, as part of the recognize the problem and bring it into the light, often this requires that we start to look at ourselves and examine what is the root of the issue. As I said earlier, often the behavior and the thinking that you want to change is a symptom of a deeper issue. You know, for me, in my struggle, that meant I had to go and get psychological help. I, did, I joined this psychology, like, counseling course thing, and through that course, I learned that the behaviors, uh, the pornography, the lust, wasn't the root issue. It was actually, the, those things were rooted in two lies. One was that sex was the be best thing in the world and I deserved it. And two, that I was unlovable and the only way I'd ever obtain it was through pornography. And I had to come to a place where I found the root, I found the lies, and brought, bring them into the light so that I could live in freedom. And I'm not going to pretend that's easy. It's really, really hard. You know, 1 John 1 puts it this way. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to walk in the light for God and others. And this is difficult because it means taking a page from our Catholic brothers and sisters that we really don't do well, which is confession. And repentance it means looking at ourselves, recognizing the problem, and then just having the guts to bring it forward before God and others. So you see, the reality is that often sin becomes a stronghold in our lives. And so in order to deal with sin, we need to deal with the stronghold because whenever there's a stronghold in your life, the enemy is going to try to use it to destroy you. You know, there's this quote by uh, Levi Lusco, if we can throw it up on the screen. It's a pastor down in Montana. He says, in your life, a stronghold is an area in which you have become entrenched in believing something that isn't true or in doing something you shouldn't be doing. And as a result, the enemy has a heavily fortified position in your life. Simply put, it's a constant pull in the wrong direction. We can go to the next one. These strongholds can take many forms. Pride, anxiety, 
lust, resentment, jealousy, bitterness, condemnation, shame, physical abuse, substance abuse, addictions, jealousy and covetousness, eating disorders, compulsive behavior, low self-esteem, the list goes on and on. These strongholds put a chokehold on the joy, growth, freedom, and strength you are meant to experience. They neutralize your effectiveness and lock you in a state of arrested development. This much is sure you'll never experience all that life holds if you are living with strongholds. So we need to expose them. We need to bring them into the light before God and others. We need to repent of those things. And, and repentance is a word that we don't like because it's difficult. Repentance means being willing to look back at the people you have hurt and to say to them, hey, I'm sorry. This is what I did. You might not have even known of it, but this is what I did. I'm sorry. This is what I'm going through. Please forgive me and please help me. Repentance is a word that literally means to turn. It's as if you're going in one direction, you're doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and when you repent, you're turning, you're looking at the people you wronged, both God and others, and you're saying, I'm sorry. And then, from there, beginning to walk in a new way of thinking. Rob Reimer in in Soul Care, he says this, he says, the key to gaining freedom, to gaining more of God's presence, to gaining intimacy with God begins with walking in the light with God and others. God cannot cleanse our excuses. He cannot pardon our denials. He cannot cleanse that which we will not confess. He can't heal what we won't admit. There's no freedom without forgiveness, and there's no forgiveness without repentance. Hiding creates darkness, and darkness destroys the soul. So if you want to live in freedom, if you want to live unleashed, unleashed from the patterns that are holding you back in your life and destroying your life, You need to recognize the problem. You need to bring it into light, into the light before God and others. And the third thing that we need to do in order to live in freedom is is we need to learn to walk in freedom. You know, there's a million books out there from people way smarter than me about how to change your behavior about how to form good habits, how to deal with bad habits, how to, how to rewire your brain. There, there are so many different books out there about on this topic. But, but a couple years back, I, I read this, this book. It was called Switch. It was by, I believe, Chip and Dan Heath, these two psychologists. And the whole premise of the book was how to change when, ch- when change is difficult. And it's talking on an organizational scale. It's talking on a macro scale, but also on a micro scale, how do you change yourself when change is difficult? And the whole premise of the book was built on this this allegory of a, a, a rider and an elephant. If we can throw up that picture. A rider and an elephant. And they use this allegory to explain how our brains work. How we have a rational side, which is the rider, that knows right and wrong, knows who we want to be, knows where we want to go, and, and, and is trying to control this elephant who is our emotional side, who is lazy and seeks instant gratification. 
And so the premise of the book basically goes that when the writer is trying to change behavior, which is what, how we normally do, when our rational side is trying to change a behavior, often we will struggle against our emotional side until we get tired. Because there's only so long that a, a, somebody riding an elephant can force the elephant to go in a direction it doesn't want to go before that six-ton elephant's going to be like, no, that's not, no, I'm going this way now. And the premise really was that self-control, it's a depletable resource. You don't have unlimited self-control. It is something that, that, that you eventually, you can force yourself to act and think a certain way for only so long before you will get tired and your emotional side will take over. And so if you want to truly change, their premise was that you need to direct the rider, you need to know where you're going, and you need to get the elephant on the same page. And so, they, I'm not going to dive into it too deeply. If, if you really want to read the book, you can. It's, it's a really, really good book. I recommend it. But they, they give this principle, these three directions on how to, to change behavior or change yourself or change others when change is hard. And the three things they say is you need to engage the rider, motivate the elephant, and shape the path. Now, to engage the rider, it's fairly simple. Give crystal clear direction, which in dealing with patterns of behavior and thought simply means figure out who do you want to be in five years? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be living the way you are now or do you want to be different? What type of person do you want to be? Ask yourself questions like, if I were to wake up tomorrow morning, perfect, what would life look like? Give yourself a goal, a direction, where you want to go and who you want to be. And then with that goal, you can start to look at the bright spots in your life. Where, life, where are you doing good things, even when it's hard? Okay, now you have that answer. You've, you found a bright spot. Now how do you replicate that in other areas? Direct the rider, engage the rider. It, it, it means figure out where you're going, where you want to go. To motivate the elephant, well, that's a bit more difficult. The first thing, though, is find the feeling, which is basically get emotionally invested in what you want to do. So let's think not even just specifically rationally. Let's not even think about the five-year goal. Why do you want to change? How would that change make your life better? How would that change affect your family, yourself, and your friends? And even just asking yourself, and this is a difficult question to ask when, when dealing with patterns, how does my bad behavior and thinking hurt others? Find the feeling. And then from there, try and shrink the change. Because as you said, the elephant is lazy, wants instant gratification. So if you look at a five-year goal, oh, you are never going to even start. Never even going to start. It's basically, instead of thinking, I need to fix A, B, C, and D, start with, okay, I'm going to fix part one of point one AI of part one of A. Just simplify it. 
there's a principle in, um, in the like, home organization world that it's called the five-minute cleanup, and that's exactly what Shrink the Change is. And basically, the principle goes that if your house is a mess and you want to clean it, well, chances are you, don't, you, you want to clean it, but you don't actually want to clean it. Let's be real. I'd rather sit on the couch and do anything else but clean the house. And so <laughs> the principle of the five-minute pickup or five-minute cleanup is go to the messiest room in your house, set a timer for five minutes because you can do anything for five minutes, and once the timer goes off, you can stop. If you want to keep going, you can, but once it's done, if you want to stop, you stop. It's just a really simple way of motivating your emotional side that's lazy to actually do the right thing. And then the third thing is shape the path, which really simply put is if the path goes in the direction you want it to go, it's a lot easier to keep yourself on that path going in that direction. And that requires getting into community, having people in your life who you are accountable to, who you have exposed your secrets to, who you've exposed your problems to, who when you're struggling, you can go to them and say, hey, I'm struggling today. Can you pray for me? Can you support me? Can you be there for me? And, and they'll be like, yes, I got you. Or when you're doing well, they'll be there cheering you on. You've been doing amazing. That's great. Get into community. Get accountability from people who will support you. And the second part of that is tweak the environment, which really simply is get rid of the things that are going to lead you the wrong way. You know, I know of pastors and leaders and other people who, in their fight with pornography, they have discovered, I need to get rid of my phone. And so they've decided this smartphone is too much of a temptation for me. And if I have it in a moment of weakness, I am just going to go back to the behavior I don't want. So what they do, they get rid of their phone and they switch to a flip phone. Because you can't really do anything on a flip phone except call people. And kind of text with that. Kind of. It's miserable. But they've decided I'm going to tweak my environment to, so that I can live and continue to live in freedom. We need to live, learn to live in freedom. Engage our rational side. Motivate our emotional side. And shape our path. And the most important part of that is in community with accountability, we need to decide the way I'm living right now is not how I want to live any longer. And we need to make that decision daily to say, God, help me. I've been living in slavery too long and I want freedom. Galatians 4, Paul puts it this way. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not God's. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? And he goes on in chapter 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Want to be free? 
you want to live in freedom? You want to deal with that unforgiveness and the lies and the pain and the problems and the addictions and the things in your life that are holding you back from everything that God has for you and wants to give you? If you want to live in freedom, you need to recognize the problem, bring it into the light before God and others, and learn to walk in freedom. And I won't pretend it's easy, but it is possible. It might take sacrifice. It might take hard work. You might need to go to counseling. You might need to reveal things to your spouse that you have never revealed to anyone else. But I promise you, it's worth it. You can't live unleashed when you're shackled to patterns that are just trying to destroy you. Get us all to stand. I'm going to pray in a moment here. As we do, I'm, we're not going to have any specific application time or I'm not going to get you to do anything specific this morning because the reality is that freedom requires choice and it requires hard work and it will look different in your life than in mine. I just know that these three things are what walked me, helped me walk into freedom through the grace of God and the power of God. And I don't want to force anyone to do something that they don't want to do, but, but I really want to encourage you right now. If God has been putting something on your heart, if you have been recognizing a pattern of behavior or thought in your life that God is like, you need to change that. I have something better for you than that. Don't ignore that. The worst thing you can do is ignore it. Because in the darkness, sin will only increase. It'll only grow and grow and grow and grow and cause more and more problems and then spread to your children and to their children. So deal with it now. Get to the root of the problem. Address the problem. Bring it into the light learn to live in the freedom that Christ has paid for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you came and you died to set us free. I thank you that we don't need to live in slavery to anything other than you, God that is for freedom that you have set us free, that we can live in freedom and wholeness and health, Lord, because of your sacrifice. But Lord, I pray that you will help each and every one of us to deal with the patterns, the strongholds, the habits that are tearing us down. God, bring to our minds any patterns that need to be broken. Give us the strength to step out in faith and to deal with them, to dig into them, to find the root, to expose the problem and and bring it to the light for you and others, God. Help us to walk in freedom that we will not be people who are bound by lies and shame and brokenness and addiction any longer, but that we will be free, truly free, 
and the life you have for us, God. We pray this all in your name.